Hello and welcome to Fighting Tengu. I'm Stephen Milton. And I'm Batman O'Brien. This podcast explores how to deal with the daily difficulties of life and supporting our mental health using techniques, strategies and life lessons of our martial arts. Join us on this quest as we speak openly about our own challenges and adversities and talk to others about how practicing martial arts has helped reframe our lives in a more positive and meaningful way. Unwavering focus. Hajime! <laughs> Unwavering focus. A concept called Kriyoku in the Japanese martial arts. Um, one of the big problems with people today is, uh, not you, you're perfect, but like everyone else, um, is we engage in multitasking way too much. We've got like this app open, we've got TikTok things, we've got music in the background, we're doing this thing, we're, we're doing everything at once. And that is not a very productive way of dealing with things or of running your life. And studies have shown that multitasking reduces your productivity in anything by about 40%. This is not a good way to be. So one of the most important principles I have ever learned is this concept of kiryoku, which translates to direct unwavering focus. Now, I run a lot of different businesses. I've got my strength business, I've got my acupuncture practice, I've got my self-defense companies, I'm doing a podcast now. I've got a lot of different irons in a lot of different fires. But I don't multitask. I do one single thing to completion, and that way it is done, and I don't have to waste time and come back to things. Now, there is a wonderful scene in Interview with a Vampire, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt. Very young Brad Pitt, now that I think about it. Antonio Banderas was in it, too. Um, and the opening scene is Brad Pitt's with uh, Christian Slater making a guest appearance as the interviewer. And he's telling Christian Slater about his life as a vampire. And he senses, you don't believe me. And he just goes, let me turn on the light. And then across the room, the light flicks on. And he's standing there. Christian Slater falls back in his chair. And he's just like, oh, my God, how did you do that? And... Louis, Brad Pitt's character, simply explains a simple series of gestures and movements just faster than your eye could see. That is Kiryoku, unwavering focus. He was concentrating on one thing, walking across the room, then turning on the light switch. That's it. One, and then one. Not thinking about anything else, just one thing. And this is present in all of the martial arts I practice. And one of the most important skills I ever learned in Iaido was to harness this skill. So our very first kata in Iaido, Musujikin Asian Ryu Iaido, and in Zenken Ren Iaido, is Ma'e. It means front. You have a target, a single target directly in front of you. Your hands come onto the sword break the seal you begin slowly reluctantly you do not want to do this back down back away but the moment that you make the decision that this person must die that is it you draw the sword and you cut and you do so decisively and then you cut again decisively and it is done but you must have direct unwavering focus on the opponent on your intent and 
one of the interesting things is the reason why beginners think I do this kata quickly is because when they're trying to do the kata, they're thinking about, I have to move my thumb and they're looking down now. And then I have to put my hand on this way. And then I have to pull the left hand back and the right hand forward. And then I have to turn the left hand and I have to do something with my hips. And I have to do, it's a million different things that they're trying to do all at once. I'm trying to do one thing, cut, that's it. And because I'm doing that one thing and I'm doing it slowly and smoothly and efficiently, it looks like I'm going very quickly, like Louis flicking on that light switch. Simple series of gestures and movements just faster than you can see, but it's a simple series of single focused intent. In reality-based combat, in street violence, in self-defense, it's the exact same thing. So one of the martial arts I trained in is called target focus training developed by former U S Navy SEAL intelligence officer, Tim Larkin. And it's an interesting style. It's very effective. Uh, I really enjoy training in it. And one of the principles is you pick a single target and you go through it, penetrate, injure, rotate, see the target, penetrate the target, injure the target, rotate, find the next target, but you're not trying to do multiple things all at once. You see the clavicle, you break the clavicle. Now his arm is useless. That's going to cause a spinal reflex where they're going to take that injury site. They're going to move their other hand to it and they're going to move away. That opens up the side of their jaw, the side of their ear, break that. That's going to cause this spinal reflex, which is going to, and then you just literally press the buttons, flipping on a light switch. That is Kiryoku. So how can you apply that in your own life if you don't have a sword and you're not in a street fight? Businesses, emails, uh, we have calls constantly interrupting us. So let's say you're in an office and you're working away at whatever project you're doing and you get this email and now you're interrupted in that thing that you're doing. You have to attend to the email. You have to read the email, digest the email, think about what you have to say, respond to that. Then you go back to what you were doing, but you've forgotten where you went off. So you have to pick up where you went off, reread that. Now you've wasted five minutes and then you're back into it. But then Bob comes along. It's always Bob. I don't know why, but it's Bob. Bob just irritates the hell out of me. He comes in and he's just like, Hey, I need you to take a look at this. And you're just like, I, I'm in the middle of the, fine. Okay. You look at what Bob's telling you, you get in the right frame of mind to digest it. You realize this isn't my department, Bob. What are you doing? Give it back to Bob. Now you try to get back to work. See how this is inefficient. See how this is wasting your time. See how this isn't productive. No. So just as in an EI kata, I prepare, I draw, I cut. I am creating a boundary in that kata. There is a distance at which my sword can reach and my opponent's sword could reach me. So I'm essentially creating boundaries and I'm defining that distance, defining that boundary. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to set up an autoresponder on your email saying, hi, I got your email. In the issues of efficiency, my emails are checked between 4 and 4.30 and 11 and 11.30, whatever times you want. I don't care. It's your life. But give half an hour to developing and answering those emails. Okay? And that's it. That's the only time you answer your email. 
if you need an urgent response, call me at this number. Give them the number. Never answer that phone. On that phone, I want you to leave a voice message saying, hi, you've reached this number. In the interest of efficiency, I check this voicemail between 10 and 10.30 and 3 and 3.30. If it is urgent, text me. And now what you have done is you've reduced this massive long-winded email or massive long-winded voicemail to a very short text that you can answer with yes or no. And set specific times to address those. And that way you can remain uninterrupted in your work. And this is a way of preventing Suki openings that can allow your flow to be interrupted and you develop this unwavering focus. And then we could talk about time management, but I'm not sure about the time. How's that, Stephen? No, that's good. Yeah, um, there's a couple of things in that. Uh, first of all, it was interesting that you were talking about walking to a light, a light switch and then turning on that light switch. And you used the words one and one mm-hmm. as opposed to one and two. So they're not connected. It's one thing, then now I do another thing. And that is very interesting. You know, mm. it's a concept. Uh, yeah, that, that that's uh, I'd like to explore more of, actually. Um, in your... Go on, you were going to say something. Go on, say Well, just it's the idea of doing one thing to completion. Mm. I get it from the chair. That is an action. I have completed it. I did it perfectly. I walk across the room. I did it perfectly. It was graceful. I kept my hips low. I was had a correct posture. My breathing was excellent. It was a graceful walk. Everyone enjoyed it. Then... <laughs> <laughs> Then I flick on the light switch. Again, a perfect gesture. A single finger extended. I flick it on. There's a very satisfying click. I look resplendent. You know, everything is done. A single thing to complete perfection. Oh, we're looking damn good. Okay. Uh, That that puts me in mind, I suppose, of, of what I have read about Japanese culture. And you lived in Japan, didn't you? I did. I yeah. was there for a year. For a year. So you, yep. you got first-hand experience of this. And there is this um, this thing in, in Japanese culture. You can see them on YouTube. There, there are pot makers, for example, mm. who only make a pot. That mm-hmm. is it. They've been doing it for 40 years. And if, if apparently if you ask them, according to one of my senseis, if you ask them, they'd be like, oh, yeah, it's good. But give me another 20 years and maybe it'll be perfect. You know, mm-hmm. just this idea that that they're just working on this one thing. Mm-hmm. And in some martial arts as well, it's encouraged not to do other martial arts, just to focus on the one thing. Yes. Um, so that you can actually perfect it. So there's this feeling of mastery, of, of, of wanting to master something. Uh, I can understand how that would be satisfying, actually, especially in terms of completing work, even yeah. if it is drudge work. Even if it is, because it's the best possible drudge work. And no one could do it better. Muhammad Ali actually touched on this once um, uh, in an interview. I, I just thought, oh, goddamn, amazing. Uh, he was just like, you know, he, they were driving along and he just goes, see that guy? He's taking out the bins, right? You know what I would be if I was a bin man? I'd be the best bin man in the world. No one would take out the bins as good as Muhammad Ali would take out the bins. I'd do 50 more bins than anybody else would ever do. And it was just like, and the absolute, because he would. 
because he would take one bin out and he would do it perfectly. And then he would take another bin out and he would do it perfectly. And every single one of those would be done perfectly and executed like no one had ever done before. And he would make it an art form. And that is that Japanese essence. The elevation of any single thing to a perfected art. We make tea in Ireland by boiling a kettle, throwing in a tea bag, pouring in the tea and leaving it there or stirring it around viciously and then throwing it out, pouring in the milk, job done, takes 30 seconds. Japan, let's have a cup of tea two hours later. You have your tea. Because there's an entire ritual. There's, there's a, the, the Japanese term tea ceremony, sado, is so satisfying. Um, I've attended it. I've practiced it. Uh, one of my teachers in Nitenichi Ryu is a tea master. And it is just the most enthralling experience that every single gesture, every single movement is completely focused on and given its own space and its own time and its own definition. You touch the hem of your sleeve in a particular fashion. You extend your hand at a particular angle. You take the lid at a particular moment. Every single one of these is precise. Every single one of these is exact. Every single one of these is perfect and efficient and awesome. And then you move it across at a precise moment and you tilt it at a precise angle and you stop and you move back and you place it down. It is beautiful, natural, flowing. But it is this way because every single movement is and of itself important given value given weight given focus and when you have completed that then you can move on not before only at completion and this is how i run all my businesses i don't multitask i do one thing at a time and i do it till it is done and it is awesome and it is perfect and then i move on and as a result, I get to do so many different things, but it's not many different things at once. It's one thing at a time. When I, uh, when I watched, when I watched Eido <clears throat> on YouTube, I was like, terrible idea. Yeah, it is a terrible idea. Uh, I was like, yeah, okay, that's, that looks cool. Like, it's got a sword in it, and I like what he's wearing, and, you know, it's cool, yeah, grand, yeah. But I wasn't really drawn to it. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until we were at a, a Jodo seminar, there was an Eidoka there, and he decided he would show us the first few kata. And all of a sudden, it became something else, because mm. he embodied it. And that was actually what drew me then to to. Eido. I don't have the time to do Eido. I've done a few bits, but that's about, but that's about it. But his embodiment and the dynamic of it is something that you can only, I think, understand or get a feel for if you see it in, in person. Absolutely. And, and following on from that, what's interesting is those people who have mastered, say musicians, for example, a number of musicians I've spoken to, really high level musicians, would um, talk about a point in their life where they would stop twiddling like say a guitar player, they stop playing and they'd say, well, I'm just going to go back to the notes and I'm just going to see what's in this note. Mm -hmm. And you'd be like, from outside, you'd be like, yeah, what? you know, um, but in actual fact, 
I think it's the beginning of mastery. Yes. Where where they've discovered they've done all the twiddly bits, they've done all the the flashy things, they've done everything, and then they realize that there's something underneath just doing this one thing, just mm. touching on this one note and letting it ring out and and connecting with it. And so I, I think when you look at these things from the outside, uh, and when you look at work, for example, your drudge work, okay, the the you know punching in in numbers into a computer for hours at a time. There's there's nothing in us that, that would interest you. Uh, no no sane human would be interested. But there is an ability in our minds to make it interesting, mm-hmm. to embody it, to go into us and to find something in it, find some kind of gold in it. It is a question of, of making a choice, mm-hmm. I think. The environment that you're in, if you're in an office environment, you're dealing with a lot of different personalities. Some of these personalities are crazy. Some of these personalities are, are um, passive aggressive, blah, 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 blah. Somewhere in order to enjoy work, you have to figure it out in your head how you're going to get through a day. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, I think, quality of, of working for a living that you have to figure out your way around everything, uh, which could cause an awful lot of stress. Yeah, absolutely. If, if it's not dealt with, you know. Um, but the the workplace is the modern battlefield. That's it's, right. It's it's chaos. It's different actors. You've got somebody flanking you here. You've got somebody jockeying for position underneath. You've got someone from up top trying to keep everybody down. You've got the rebels coming up. You've got the spearmen coming from the sides. You've got, you know, Johnson with his goddamn report on the left. It's You've got all these different personalities. You've got all this different chaos. It is no different in respect to military engagement, which is why so many business strategists read Japanese martial arts textbooks like the Gorin no Show, which was a one developed by Miyamoto Musashi, because the principles contained there, just like karaoke, can be applied to your business and can be applied to your work so that you can be more efficient, so that you can win those battles, so that you can survive that war and come out the other side the victor. And it is about mindset. It is all about how you approach it. And do you want to elevate your work and your professionalism to an art form? You could, no matter what that is. As Ali said, you can do it doing the bins. You can do it entering data. That's absolutely fine. But you reminded me of a story about Yagayu Mononori, right? Yagayu Mononori was um, a master of Yagayu Shinkagi Ryu, right? Lots of cool stories about this guy. But one of time, one of his students is walking along the streets and is coming and approaching Yagaya Mononori's house. And he sees him delivering a diagonal cut known as a Kesa cut again and again and again. And he sees the sweat glistening on him, he, transforming him into this like nearly divine figure. You know, the light hitting him and shining off the sweat pumping out of him. And he sees his face glistening in sweat. And as he gets closer, he realizes it's not sweat, but tears streaming down his master's face as he cuts again and again and again. And with every cut, he just goes, not yet. It's not right yet. Again. And he cuts again. It's still not right. Again. One thing unwavering focus on one thing. And this student is looking at this going, this is the single greatest cut I have ever seen in my life, only to be replaced by the single greatest cut I have now ever seen. And it is this striving for perfection on a single thing that just 
elevates everything. And it doesn't matter what that is. It can be as simple as mundane as making a cup of tea. It could be as simple as entering numbers into a computer. But you can make that incredibly satisfying through focused awareness on what it is that you're doing. And hopefully you don't have tears streaming down your face just going, those numbers aren't right. Not yet. <laughs> no, I didn't enter that key perfectly. Not yet. Yes. Um, yes. The tippity tap is not sounding right. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to get into obsessive yeah, borderline yeah, compulsions yeah. here. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's achieving perfection in something that you can never be perfect at. From your reading of Masashi, uh, where does he display this, this to, to good effect? Oh, wow. Um, in everything, to be honest, because Musashi took this concept of just focusing on that one thing until mastery and mastered many different things as a result of that, because what he chose to master was the way of mastery. Um, so he perfected the art of working on a thing till you're perfect at it. And with that, he was able to see the commonalities in all things. And he talks about this in the book, in the Go Rin No Show, in the opening preface, he discusses, you know, the way of carpentry as, you know, you set out your tools, you design your plan, you do the thing, you sort it all out, you have the bits after. And he talks about that in terms of castle construction, but he also turns that in terms of martial technique. You set out your basics, you learn your craft, you polish it, same thing. You cut the wood, you... Uh, nail it and go all together, join it all together, glue it all together, then you sand it down, then you paint it, perfect. Um, if you do that quickly, you're going to have rough edges and it's going to be sloppy and it's going to be crap. But if you take the time and you measure correctly and you cut correctly and you do everything singly to perfection, you create a work of art, an absolute masterpiece. And again, there are TikToks and, and videos and memes of people just looking at Japanese carpentry because it's so precise and so perfected because that is what you do um and he was an author he was an artist uh in japan most people actually know musashi less as a warrior and more actually for his artwork um which is priceless and and just stunning um he was a, a potter. He was a, he, there's um, saddles that he carved. There's suba metal uh, sword guards that he made. And he was a master of all of these because he had mastered the concept of mastery itself, which was direct, unwavering focus. And you see this in the very, very first kata of Hyoho Nitenichiryu, which is Musashi's art. The first kata is called Sasen. There is an opponent coming towards you with a sword. He is going to cut down straight through you. As he is cutting, at the very last moment, with complete, direct, unwavering focus, your sole goal is to move off the line by a centimeter and stab him in the throat with your sword. It is no more direct and unwavering than that. To have the guts to stand there and wait as someone comes at you with a sword, and at the very last moment, and you win, and they die. And that is the first kata, because it's the first principle. Unwavering. Do not be deterred on your goal. 
if someone's coming at you with a sword, it's very easy to flinch. It's very easy to run away. You've got that experience in Johto. People come at you with swords all the time. And if you react and you flinch, you're going to screw up the kata. But if you focus, bam, you catch it. You catch their sword. And now, bam, you can haraitsuki, you can pin them. It's direct. It's unwavering. It's focused. So there's a thing called a fukushinai. Mm -hmm. Every now and then, John Kennedy sensei... <laughs> Brings the Fukushinai into into uh, the Jodo uh, dojo. The Fukushinai is a, a piece of bamboo that is covered in leather. It is supposed to be a safe weapon. <laughs> Batman's laughing. And I I respect and appreciate what he's trying to do, but it is terrifying in certain hands, his included. Um, we had a moment. We're doing kata number one in Jodo. And he's not going to, he's not going to slow down for me because it's a Fukushinai. It's not a Bakken. Bakken's a wooden sword, but he's going to go through me. And um, the first time we did it, he hit me mm -hmm. and it hurt. Mm -hmm. The second time he did it, he hit me and it hurt. But the third time I was trying to draw something from within myself mm. just to get out of the way, right? Not to flinch. And, and, and just to get away at the right moment, which is basically as the sword is starting to move to in, in the arc of coming down. Mm -hmm. It's not as the sword goes up. It's when the arc is coming down. So the, they've committed to the cut. That's when you're supposed to move. It's a very, very, very small window. And it was weird because on the third try, it wasn't rage I was using. It was something else I was using. And I was out of the way, just, just a split second out of the way. I could feel it just going down my shoulder, mm. but I was out of the way. Um, but it wasn't rage. It was something else, some internal thing that I don't know to this day what it was, mm. but that's what got me out. And um, it's, it's an interesting experience to have, oh, you know, great. it's an interesting experience to have because it informs you that there are things inside you like a, a power inside you can generate mm -hmm. to do something that is exceptionally difficult, you know? And yep. when you know you have that power inside you, it can go a lot of different ways. You can start to feel invincible and do stupid things. Hey, yep, I get there. it. Yep, we've all done it. Yep. <laughs> However, uh, this power can be applied to all aspects of your life. And I think this is what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. If you can get an experience of that, that's in a safe space, yep. in a good environment, um, it, it actually does change the way you work with your life. Yeah, it changes you know? everything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this isn't necessarily the, the main topic of the subject, but and we might cover this in more detail in a later podcast, but um, one of the big things today is mindfulness. And, you know, that's kind of tangible to what I've been talking, mindful intent in terms of what you're doing. And you're mindful of you're doing this one thing to completion. But people are big on mindfulness these days and meditation, and they spend years trying to learn it. And it's just like, I can teach you mindfulness in literally seconds. It's real simple. I'll have John with a Fukushima come at your head. And that's your whole world. That's your entirety of existence. Nothing else exists except this angry man trying to crack you in the head. And if you are not focused on a single unified purpose of intent, body, mind, soul, breath work, everything, 
he's going to hit you. And the only way to survive that is to have that complete unity of everything, of, of who you are, what you are, where you are in this moment, at this time, there it is. His hands have just crossed his eyes for a split second, a millisecond, a fraction of a millisecond. You are invisible to him. And then you move and boom, empty space is what he cuts into. And you stand there triumphant, looking fabulous. Uh, some of us do. Well, some of yeah. us also look kind of terrified and, and wild-eyed <laughs> and the sweat pouring down you. Um, but yeah, being present, being present is 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 Impressive. massive. I mean, the other thing I would say as well is, you know, you have years of training behind you. You have years of physical training that is unifying, going towards unifying. Mm. I have a number of years behind me going in the same direction, unifying. One of the, the most enjoyable aspects of doing Jodo is the being present. Mm -hmm. uh, when I go into the dojo, whatever is being said at that moment in time, I am listening to that. I am not thinking about what I'm having for breakfast nope. the next day. I am not thinking about what my kids are doing at this moment in time. I'm actually focused on that one thing. And I, that's what I, I absolutely love about it. You know, again, we're going back to the same idea that physical uh, activity mm -hmm. plus being completely focused, solely focused on one thing it makes me go into a different state, an altered state where there's very little stress. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I would say to a lot of people that I meet Actually, when people are stressed and they're stressed and they're talking about stress and they're like, oh, my God, I'm so stressed right now. And I'm like, well, hold on a moment. Where are you right now? Right now. You're sitting in a chair. You're talking to me. Mm -hmm. Are you safe? Yes. Are you uh, in the situation that's stressing you out at this moment in time? No, I'm not. You're, you're literally in a chair. Coming back to this present moment has such power mm -hmm. in so many different ways especially with dealing with anxiety. Like there's this story about, maybe this is tangential as well, mm -hmm. but there's this story that, that a psychologist friend told me that basically you're a Neanderthal man, you're walking through the savannah and up ahead is a copse of trees and some bushes and stuff. Now you're going to have to cross the, the bushes to get to where you want to go. The chance of a tiger being in those bushes, it's 50-50, right? Um, and our approach to that is we sense danger and we feel out danger and we, we decide whether to risk danger or not. Most mm. of us would, would actually just go ahead and walk into danger because we're not that, that focused and aware and, and attentive to ourselves. But if you're very focused and aware and attentive to yourself, you're, you're going to assess the risk. The thing is, you can be wrong 99% of the time, but the 1% that you're right and there is a tiger in the bushes, you're dead. And so the, the brain actually focuses on the negative uh, outcomes for us as a defense mechanism, mm -hmm. as a way of keeping us safe. So we look at issues that are up, coming up ahead of us or we're currently in, and we look at the negative outcomes. The brain automatically goes to the negative outcomes so that we will try and uh, deal with those and try and neutralize those and mm -hmm. try and, try and uh, work around them. Um, but this causes a ton of stress, you know? So coming back into the present moment... We haven't walked into the bushes yet. Nobody's eaten us. Mm -hmm. We're here. So what do we want to do next? I think that does translate into unwavering focus as absolutely. well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you have unwavering focus on the here and now, mm. on where you are in this moment, not letting your mind wander yeah. and waver yeah. to those future phantom nightmare scenarios that plague our imaginations. Yeah. And that's one of the 
interesting distinctions I think that you've touched on there is this difference between what I would say pain and suffering. Pain is inevitable. It happens. You get hit on the head by John. Bang. It hurts. It happens. We are born through pain. We grow through pain. It is inevitable, but it is also momentary. It's there and it's gone. Now, in cases like chronic pain, you might have a continual succession of those pains, but it's, and it feels like it's just constant, just bam, 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 bam. Suffering is everything a human being does to escape and avoid pain, including imagined pain. So, good example of this, man, dentists, right? We've all been there, boys. You have a toothache. Oh, oh my God, it hurts. My wife, go to the dentist. No, it's fine. I'll live with it. It's right. It'll go away. Two weeks later, it hasn't gone away. Oh my God. Go to the dentist. But he's going to do the ejection. You know, the one I'm talking about, the one in the roof of your mouth. We all hate that one. I will suffer, suffer pain for two weeks because I'm afraid of the inevitable pain of that split second injection into the roof of my mouth. That's there for literally that, and it's gone. But I will suffer actual pain for weeks to avoid a tiny momentary pain. That doesn't make any sense. But we all do it. We're all very silly creatures. So, when my patients are in crisis, I do the exact same thing you just advised there. I ask them, where are they? What's going on? Are they safe? Yes, they're talking to me. It's okay. Because this allows them to differentiate between pain and suffering. There is no time for philosophy in pain. When pain is occurring, you are getting things done, right? To make the pain go away. Like no one is thinking about, huh, is this pain or is this suffering when they have a broken arm? They're going, oh my God, ow, I need to get to a hospital. You're not, you're not discussing philosophy. You're taking action. Pain nearly always creates action. Suffering generally doesn't. Suffering is all of the things that we do to ourselves when we're not in pain, but we're afraid of pain. Now, we are gifted as humans with amazing imagination. But just like you perfectly summarized there with the tiger in the woods, we imagine all these terrible scenarios, all these worst case scenarios, And we suffer now in this present moment where we're perfectly fine and perfectly safe, having a very nice conversation, but we're suffering in this moment over something that may probably, in all likelihood, never actually happen. Never happens. Now, so the first question, is this pain or is this suffering? If you can ask that question, you have your answer. It's suffering. If it's suffering, what is the pain that you are afraid of that you are currently suffering about? And then to recognize that pain as not happening right now, everything's okay. And is that really likely to happen? I don't know. And we've got a couple of strategies for that in my clinic. So one of them comes from a a book called the Hagakure, the Book of Hidden Leaves. Right, written by a retainer of the Nabashima clan in Japan. It's um, popular in, in popular media, I suppose. Um, Ghost Dogway, the samurai, with yep. um, 
<gasps> Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, uh, I bought that book based on that film. There you go. Yeah. Um, terrible idea, yeah, but okay. Great. I love that film, though, because it, it, there's this wonderful moment between two people who, you know, Forrest Whitaker's character and this French guy, and he doesn't speak French, and the French guy doesn't speak English, but they become friends wordlessly and i love that i think that's great um but that 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 film was i love that film it's a terrible film but i love that film oh no it's a great film um but the the hagakuri the book of leaves is is written by this disgruntled retainer of the nabushima clan and it's filled with bitterness and nonsense to be honest but i love it anyway um but one of the pieces of advice he gives to samurai is that every morning a samurai must wake up imagine himself pierced by a thousand arrows cut apart set on fire hung drawn and quartered thrown into bits and sea and you should imagine all of this you know and the reason for this is because he is essentially playing what we would call in modern behavioral psychology the what if scenario let's play it out what if right and the goal of this is to figure out what you can survive right 10 you cannot survive one you can totally survive right so Let's, let's, let's play the what if game. I walk into a table, I stub my toe. That's a one, okay? I walk into a table, I stub my toe, but there's a rusty nail, I get tetanus. Oh God, now I have to go to a hospital now to get medical things, oh, but maybe I have compounding factors, oh, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And you take it to the absolute extreme of what it could be, right? You're lying in a hospital bed now with your toe pumping out blood, and you, they might have to cut off your leg. Okay. Can you survive that? Yeah. Does it feel good? No. Is it a pleasant idea? No. Is it also ridiculous? Kind of, because you're not going to lose your leg because you stubbed your toe. But we're playing a, a, a game of what if. What if the worst case scenario happens? Now, does that mean... Uh, it's an insurvivable thing? No. I've played this game with the worst psychological horrors I can invent that make me panic in the here and now where I'm safe and warm and cozy. And I have played this game where I'm just like freaking out about this thing that's never going to happen. But I go, okay, we're going to wrap this all the way up. Let's say everything goes wrong, right? In Ireland, we have an expression, Murphy's Law. Yep. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Sounds. My family, the O'Briens, have another phrase. We believe Murphy was an optimist. Anything that can't go wrong, that's going to go wrong too. Okay. So uh, we're well used to this in my clan. Um, and I have found a 9.5, but I've never found a 10. Oof. Yeah, but I can still survive. I, it mightn't be pleasant, mm. but I can survive. Mm. Um, and that allows you to kind of reframe what's happening. It allows you to reframe uh, your anxiety around this phantom nightmare and to really put the light on it and expose it for what it is. It's a ridiculous scenario that's probably never going to happen. And if it does happen, guess what? You'll survive it. So the what if game, I find a really, really useful strategy, but it brings you back to the moment. It brings you back to the here and now. And it's an application of this concept of unwavering focus. Okay, let's really think about that nightmare scenario that you're afraid of and feeling suffering from right now, even though it's not happening, but let's play it. Let's focus on that. 
Let's go all the way to 10 and see how bad it can get. Is any of that happening right now in this moment? No. Everything right now is fine. And this is direct, unwavering focus applied to that concept of pain and suffering and anxiety and dread. And there's a really, really good technique that I teach patients who are having anxiety disorders or panic attacks, and they're prone to that. Um, I've done this with students at seminars who've had panic attacks. I've done this with myself having panic attacks, and it really works. And again, it is a method of applying direct and wavering focus to the present moment in the here and now. So it starts really simple. Name five things you can see. I can see Stephen. I can see the table, I can see the mug, I can see the phone, I can see the stand, and so forth. So you're grounding yourself in the present moment. Fully focused, what can you see? Give me five concrete things. Okay. Give me four things you can touch. I can touch my nose, I can touch my leg, I can touch the table, I can touch the mic stand. Now, again, I'm anchoring myself in the present moment with all of this. I'm getting kinesthetic sensory feedback grounding me in the here and now where everything is okay. Okay. Give me three things you can hear. I can hear my hand. I can hear my voice, my breathing, my heart, whatever that is. I can hear the hum of the fridge. I could hear the birds and the trees. It doesn't matter. Just three things you can hear. Again, you're connecting your senses to the present moment in the here and now. Two things you could smell or two things you can taste. It doesn't matter. Just take another sense, ground it down. I can smell my aftershave. I can smell the sawdust. One thing, how do you feel? Calm. Five, four, three, two, one. That's very, very good. Really useful technique for focusing the mind in the present moment to help you break that cycle of feeling pain now and suffering because of something that's not happening. So the, another thing the psychologist friend of mine talked about is that when crisis occurs, our higher functions shut down because uh, we, we are focused solely on survival at that mm. point. We're not really thinking about things. Um, they talk about the, uh, the shaking technique that, that uh, animals have that often if they have a flight or fight experience, um, a fight or flight experience, uh, that they will later on, they'll shake, their whole body will shake. And that, that's their way of kind of releasing all of the tension, the anxiety and everything mm -hmm. else that, that occurred with the event. We don't really have that uh, in, in society. And I wonder, in your opinion, uh, what causes panic attacks and anxiety, or from a TCM point of view, what would be viewed as, as causing panic attacks and anxiety? Because they are very prevalent. Mm. Um, is this just the, your neurology, your, your physical neurology and, and the hormones that are being released 
actually let me be let me be more specific some people have almost constant sense of anxiety and panic mm. yeah that they cannot put their finger on yeah um someone very close to me lived with the constant sense of dread for years absolute years and one of the techniques outside of tcm that they found very useful was uh, autogenic training and autogenic therapy and i mentioned this because one of the techniques in autogenic therapy is a concept called intentional offloading where you dissipate that stress and you do it as i've touched on before through movement but you do it by just shaking yeah. You do that shake response that animals have. Yeah. And you literally just shake and twitch and move around. And you allow that stress, that energy to dissipate. Um, and that's a really, really good technique. And AT, autogenic therapy and autogenic training is, is wonderful. Um, and used by the Japanese judo gold medalists. Um, and uh, something we might talk about later. But it's... In Eastern medicine, uh, panic attacks and anxiety disorders are often associated with disharmonies in either the heart or the kidneys. So for the purposes of, of easy understanding, we'll focus on the kidneys. The kidneys are associated in Eastern medicine in five element theory, which is where every organ collection is associated with a particular observable element of nature. The kidney and the bladder, uh, they're connected because obviously one is more yin dominant, one is more yang dominant, so one is more passive, one is more active in nature. And the kidneys and bladder are obviously tied together in Western medicine, so they're connected, kidney and bladder, yin and yang. And the kidney bladder is associated with the water element in five element theory. And the reason for this is simple. What do the kidneys and the bladder do? They make water, which is a traditional expression for I have to go pee. And the interesting thing from a mental emotional point of view, they're associated with fear and anxiety. Why? Well, it goes back to natural environments. It goes back to nature. Bambi is in the woods. And then all of a sudden, a twig snaps. What happens? Bambi's head raises, eyes wide, ears alert. <laughs> smells the scent of a predator, and it skips off. Now, what you don't see in the Disney film, and generally is edited out of National Geographic, but if you go to Phoenix Park and you watch the deer there, you will see in nature. The deer will do something before it skips away gracefully. It will defecate. It will pee and poo everywhere. The reason for this is twofold. It makes the animal lighter, so it can run away faster and further. And secondly, it disrupts the scent. No one wants to wade through that crap, quite literally, in some cases, to get to a deer that's 400 yards away. Humans are animals. We act on natural law. What happens when we're children, when we're scared? We wet the bed. When we feel fear and anxiety, our body does exactly what Bambi does, and we want to get rid of the contents of our bladder and our bowels so that we can run away uh, faster and further and disrupt the scent because animals natural law. So there's a strong association between the kidneys and the bladder and fear. Now, it gets even cooler because when they came up with this idea 5,000 years ago, they didn't know about adrenaline or epinephrine. So what happens when we feel anxiety is we get this surge of adrenaline. The adrenal glands are just on top of your kidneys. Now, 
Adrenaline's amazing stuff. It's designed for five, 15 minutes use, not designed for everyday living. And what happens is, you know, a bear jumps out at us. And what are we going to do? We're going to stand and fight the bear. Okay. The bear killed you. It was over in about 15 seconds. Right. No one's going to land, you know, five minute rounds against a bear. Well, Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall did. But that's a whole different thing. And I'm not sure if Leonardo DiCaprio did in The Reverend. Yeah, I didn't watch that film. Did he? Yeah, Great. He okay. Um, excellent. Um, so it's, it's going to be over very, very quickly. Or you're going to run away. And that bear's either going to ignore you or chase after you. Either way, it's over in about five to 15 seconds. Right? Um, maybe 15 minutes tops. But, you know, it's, it's not designed for long-term use. After that, adrenaline is very, very toxic in the system. So the kidneys have to do a huge amount of work to capture it and excrete it and remove it. Now, this comes full circle to your question, Stephen. Why do so many people have anxiety disorders? And why are they all dealing with all of this? Because we don't get enough energy from our stomach and our spleens. And we're placed in environments where we're constantly being hunted. We're being stalked by deadlines. We're being stalked by work performance targets. We're being stalked by bills. We're being stalked by all of these predators that are coming at us. And we can't fight them and we can't run from them. So what happens is, because we're not getting enough energy from the stomach and our spleen, the kidneys have to supply us with extra adrenaline and extra energy to fight against all of these things. This is, I'm wrecked in the morning, but I have to go to work. I'll take a load of coffee. It'll hype me up. Oh, there's the caffeine rush. Whoa. Okay, get into the office. Bad things happen. People cut me off in car. Oh, adrenaline spike. Oh. And over time, our kidneys get tired. They get knackered because they're constantly dealing with this adrenaline. And so they just kind of give up. And a small amount of that adrenaline just starts circulating more and more and more. I use the analogy of an empty glass in my clinic. And I fill it up with water. And that represents the sum total of all the crap that you can take in the day. And then at night, I pour it out and I empty the glass and I'm ready to start again. But over time, that emptying mechanism doesn't work as well. So there's a little bit of water left in the glass the next day. I fill it up again. I tip it out. Now it's even more full. I tip it out. It's still quite full. So it's not clearing as much of this adrenaline or the water in the glass out until the very, very tip of that glass is filled with water, which means a single drop now it doesn't matter what that stimulus could be, somebody pulling over in front of you in traffic, your work colleague shouting at you, not getting the right uh, type of tea uh, in Starbucks that morning. It doesn't matter. It could be a huge thing. It could be a tiny thing. It can be a single drop and it will cause the glass to overflow. And now you're having a panic attack. Now you're experiencing that full volume of that stress response. And going back to what we talked about earlier in terms of pain and suffering and imagined fears, your body physiologically, chemically cannot tell the difference between an actual bear attack and the bear attack you just imagined. Oh, yeah. You have the same physiological response. Yep. So your imagined fears, your imagined concerns have a real physical chemical impact on you in the here and now, in this moment, which is why it is so important to come back to this present moment of safety and security and to recognize those for what they are, phantoms. 
And when you're dealing with all of the actual genuine stresses and the actual crises that are occurring in your daily life, that adrenaline is building up. And unless you look after yourself and clear that energy out of the kidneys and clear that excess adrenaline out and strengthen that kidney functionality, it's just going to lead to this low level of circulation of adrenaline in your system. And that's going to lead to an increase in anxiety disorders and presentation. And then, because we're not taught emotional coping skills, particularly as men in Ireland, my God, we're not taught emotional coping skills at all. We have very poor emotional regulation for dealing with these things. Again, martial arts teach you a great deal about emotional management. But um, the, the idea is... How do I best explain this? We need to clear out that. We need to nourish the kidneys. So what you can do is that grounding exercise I talked about earlier, five, four, three, two, one. Breathing's always important. Physical discharge is important, as we've learned from the animals, as we've learned from autogenic training. You can just shake it out, shake it off, as Taylor Swift would say, or you can engage in a more physical practice, as we've touched on beforehand. Emotion needs to be exercised. But then you can do a couple of other interesting little things that I think might be useful. So, simple one, might not be applicable to everyone because there are food allergies, but barley tea is particularly strengthening for the kidneys. Now, the uh, former Queen of England, who had a great long reign, um, attributed her longevity to a daily regimen of barley tea. And my God, we know there was an awful lot of adrenaline going on there in the last few years. Um, but this helps to clear and dissipate some of that excess adrenaline from the system. You can massage different acupressure points like kidney three or kidney six. And again, we'll have images and descriptions of where to find these in the show notes and on our website, fightingtendu.com. And you can massage those for 30 seconds in conjunction with some breathing exercises. That clears and resets the kidneys. Um, you can just go for a nice massage. That also helps to dissipate and clear out of that stress and anxiety. Go outside, take a bit of a walk, experience the joy of nature, recognize everything is calm in the present moment, in the here and now, and everything is fine. It's all fine. And that's how it start. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I do uh, my own practice before going to bed uh, um, of meditation uh, mm -hmm. or Reiki, either or. Um, I experience anxiety sometimes as a physical pain in my stomach. Um, very hard to tell the difference actually because I have a, a sort of a constant pain mm -hmm. from not having much of a pancreas left. But lately to move that, I would definitely go for a walk. That's a, it's a, some people would think, oh, we'll go for a walk, but the, you know, I'm still having a, an anxiety and it's still happening and everything. I, I think it's fair to say that going for a walk and using breath work at the same time as you're walking mm -hmm. and breathing, what I would do is I breathe down into the, wherever that pain is and I would then breathe that out. Mm. Uh, that releases a lot of tension for me. Mm. That's one of the ones that I releases a lot of tension. And then, yeah, those, those, those are definitely ways that I would consciously actively work on anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and they're yeah. very effective. Yeah, having, having a daughter on the, the autism spectrum where her fight and flight response is actually so switched on all of the time. Mm. That's, that's a, a feature of autism. Uh, Temple Grandin has a book called The Autistic Brain where she's taken numerous MRIs of her own brain 
and looked at the, the physiology, the, the difference uh, between an autistic brain and a, and a neurotypical brain. And it does definitely show that parts of the brain are, I'm going to be very uh, non-technical. <laughs> my, my wife's the physio and she'd be way more technical about this. But the parts of the brain that are, are switched on for fight and flight, they're, they're quite um, enlarged mm. uh, and, and sometimes inflamed. And actually, as a result of that, uh, that's kind of come on to, to myself and my wife. I remember taking a walk one time and we were sitting at a river. We were, we were doing this exercise. We were very consciously managing our time to, to release the stress and anxiety that mm. we'd had in the morning. Both of us felt that we were going to be attacked. There was no one there. But we both had that strong sense of uh, attack. And, and I attribute that to the anxiety of the overload of anxiety, mm. carrying some of that from our own, from our daughter's, God bless her, deep well of, of anxiety that she has. And that was a, a moment where we, we had to consciously work on, on that because, again, in the moment, nothing was going wrong. We were yep. in a beautiful place, but we weren't enjoying that place. Mm. We were just feeling the stress and the anxiety and we had to talk it out and then breathe uh, through us and by breathing I mean literally breathing down with the space where we were feeling it and then breathing that out um, and, and coming back into the present moment yeah it it's, can be a very powerful and strong feeling an overwhelming feeling yeah. for a lot of people and I would say and I'm sure you would say that it's about working at it step by step just just one mm -hmm. thing at a time absolutely direct and wavering focus just direct, one thing yeah, one thing at a time then one thing yeah then one thing yeah, yeah. just do one thing yeah and that can be breathing, that can be doing the five, four, three, two, one exercise that we talked about earlier. Um, but one thing you touched on there that I think is very useful is you describe the pain that you're feeling and you breathe through it and you breathe it out. For some of our listeners, they might be more uh, visual in that. And so what I would suggest is if you can imagine that pain as an ice cube, a solid ice cube, and as you're breathing, I want you to think about melting that ice cube. And as it melts, I want that to become steam and vapor. I want you to breathe that out and let it go with your breath. And you might just find that a very useful anchoring exercise to physically locate the pain, identify it, and release it. Um, and you can do that physically, and you can do that emotionally, because your mental-emotional capacity is as real and as physical as the table I'm touching right now, or is your physical body. And as I touched on before, your emotions have a real chemical effect, a tangible chemical identifiable effect on your blood chemistry and on your body. So you can feel what you're feeling somewhere in your body. It might be your experience of pain as Stephen is talking is, is around the area of his pancreas. Some people feel tension in their neck. They feel because they, they're animals. So when you're cornered and threatened as a cat, what happens? You get your head goes up, <laughs> you raise your shoulders, you compress your neck to protect it because that's very vulnerable. We do the same thing unconsciously in work. So we're constantly at desks and working and dealing with people and our shoulders are just getting closer and closer to our ears and we don't even realize that we're contracting the trapezius. So we end up with these tension headaches, this sore neck and shoulders, right? So maybe that's where you feel that tension. And you can imagine all of that area is a big chunk of ice, slowly melting, feeling that liquid moving down the body, 
becoming water, becoming steam and clearing out as you breathe. And you can do that while you're walking. You can do that while you're sitting down at the beach. You can do that sitting in the chair. You can do that right now listening to this podcast, unless you're driving a vehicle, in which case don't do that. Don't do any of these techniques while operating a vehicle or heavy machinery. Um, very important. Um, but some people feel their anxiety in their gut. They feel it in different parts of their intestines. And there's an entire system of that called Amafu or Ampuku, developed by the same man who developed Reiki. And he localized different emotional positions to different parts of your intestinal tract. And by working through those physically, in connection with that exercise of, of evaporating the pain and breaking it down and releasing it through breathing work and physical manipulation to clear stagnant emotion from the body. It's a really, really useful practice. Thanks, um, yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. Um, I might put a couple of instructions for that up yeah. on, on the website as well Please. for people. Yeah, uh, one thing that puts me in mind of, I think we've, we've probably called it in a few minutes, but mm. one thing that puts me in mind of is uh, the posture that, that we have in, in martial arts. You know, there's a very specific posture, which I think when you're starting probably would would seem tense. You know, you'd be like, what am I supposed to do that for? Like, you'd be locking yourself up. But actually, more the more you practice it, the more you can relax into it. Mm -hmm. And it's very nuanced posture, but it is very specific. You're supposed to feel like you have a top knot mm -hmm. on your head, and that's being gently pulled up, and you're extending that, and then you're rolling your shoulders back. You're attempting to touch your shoulder blades together, mm -hmm. and hips slightly move in a little and you know so on and so forth there's mm -hmm. now maybe there's nuances to different martial arts mm -hmm. so i'm not saying this is everywhere but these postures are actually really really good for releasing i i, I found myself because when i went to when i began jodo i was quite mm. quite humped over quite uh quite tight and over the last few years it's been great just to to have a, a better posture through this absolutely in japanese martial arts we refer to that as shishe posture and people often just take it as oh you have to stand up straight ears over shoulders shoulders over hips hips over knees da, 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 bring your abdomen no pelvic tilt da, and all of these physical attributes but they don't realize shishe is also your mental posture and by physically aligning yourself you are mentally aligning yourself so how you stand or how you sit changes how you feel. And you can try this, again, assuming you're not operating a vehicle, you can try this right now. If you're sitting, listening to this podcast, I want you to just slump back in your chair. Round your shoulders, curl your abs, slump down. How do you feel? Blech. Okay. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to move your chair back so that you're sitting on the first third of the chair, feet down, strong posture, shoulders back, just as Stephen said, head high, and feel how you feel now. Do you feel stronger? Do you feel more confident? Do you feel more relaxed? Do you feel more alert? Your physical posture changes your mental posture, and your mental posture changes your physical. 
so that's a really, really cool point to touch on. And again, postural awareness is very important when you're doing that walking exercise that Stephen was talking about. In the Japanese martial arts, we have a concept called Zazen, which is a form of seated meditation, but we also have walking meditation. We have forms that teach you to walk. There's entire schools of etiquette, um, like Ogasawa Ryu, which is based on how to walk and how to sit down and how to stand. And it is all about posture for both physical and mental emotional balance. And again, focusing on these things, just on something as simple as how am I sitting? How am I standing? And doing that perfectly, aligning yourself correctly, fully focused on just this one thing. That's enough. Batman, thank you very much. You're very welcome. That's fabulous. That was also fabulous. Thank you for listening to Fighting Tengu. We want you to know that all of the opinions expressed here are our own and do not represent the thoughts, feelings, and ideas of our teachers. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and check out the website fightingtengu.com for articles and help sheets and more information on the subjects discussed here. 